welcome back to the Coaches Rising Podcast. I'm Joel. This is episode number 39. Did you know that many common coaching practices, such as goal setting, can actually be counterproductive to change? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring today. I'm going to be talking to Richard E. Bayatsis. He has been in coaching since 1967. It's a long time. In that time, he's logged 7,500 hours of coaching and completed 32 scientific studies on how change happens. And I like that because it's a beautiful combination of coaching, trying things out, applying it, and doing these scientific inquiries, testing, and finding out what really works. So we're going to be exploring today, how can we bring our clients into states that are neurologically optimum for learning and growth and the role that the default mode network, positive emotions and the parasympathetic nervous system play in making that shift there. All right, let's dive in. Richard, really great to see you. Or, or should I say like everybody's listening, so right. great to hear you, but how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you, Joel. Um, looking forward to being able to share some thoughts and ideas with you and your audience. Well, I'm, I'm really um, honored today because you let me know that you've been involved in the field of coaching for a long time, yeah? I actually did my first coaching sessions called that in 1969 as a part of management training that I had designed and we were doing as a, from this research-based consulting company. And we used to provide people with a lot of exercises. It was a week-long program. And we made sure that everybody had one, if not three, one-on-one -on -one sessions with the trainers during the week. And those were called coaching sessions. Also, during 1970, I was working, doing that same managing motivation training at Monsanto, training trainers. And I ran into Walt Mahler, who at the time was teaching coaching. He had the first coaching practices survey I'd ever seen. He's a former Michigan faculty member who had retired and was just doing his consulting on the side. And he was actually training executives at Monsanto in how to be better coaches, how to take a developmental approach uh, to their subordinates, to their you know, people reporting to them. At the same time, this work on coaching and especially um, our new book uh, coming out this summer, Helping People Change, it's kind of the culmination of the work that I started in 1967. In 1967, um, I was finishing my degree in aeronautics and astronautics at MIT. I specialized in design of interplanetary vehicles. I had run out of money. My parents were immigrants from Greece. They, and I'd saved money from working band jobs and restaurants and all this kind of stuff. But still, I'd run out of money. So they got me a job doing the actual work for an aerospace uh, research company out in um, California. And we were working on space shuttle and other designs. But what I learned in the process is that my lifelong dream was boring. So um, I came back, uh, decided to finish my degree. I only had two courses left, technical courses, and start to branch out. And one of the courses I signed up for uh, with David Kolb at the Sloan School of Management at MIT sounded like kind of bull to me. It was called organizational psychology, which, you know, coming out of the fact that, you know, we'd had three courses that weren't calculus or physics <laughs> or chemistry, uh, sounded weird, but 
in his description of the course, he said two words that made me run to his classroom to make sure I could get in. And he said, no tests. <laughs> so, uh, but at any rate, the, and the major term paper I had told him I wanted to do it on how managers don't help their subordinates. He had just finished collecting data on how graduate students at MIT helped or didn't help each other. And he was studying the helping process. He said, would you like to use real data? It's not managers, but they're adults. And I did. Um, he liked what I did. He offered me a job. We ended up publishing the paper. That was my first empirical paper in the field. Came out in 1970 in jabs. But it was on helping relationships. And we did a whole series of analysis and did a few more papers, one of, another one of which was published. Um, so I've been studying the helping process since 1967. And it was the thing that grabbed me, that made me want to get into this whole field. Well, this field being for me psychology and uh, all the various applications of it, including, you know, working, I mean, although I did therapy and trained therapists during the 70s, working with alcoholics and drug addicts, Throughout my career from 67 to today, I would say my, my major emphasis is on helping people that are within the range of relatively normal, um, but to try to make their life more interesting, try to contribute to society, try to have better impact on others, um, whether through formal roles like coaching or teaching or being a therapist or a physician or a nurse, or through the informal roles of just trying to help other people get excited about developing and learning. Sorry, that's a long-winded way to get to it. But yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> uh, four or five years ago when I prepared my coaching logs for the certification stuff that, I mean, I didn't really care, but um, the coach training programs we have at, at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University uh, wanted to get every, all the programs eligible for certification you know, for ICF and NBCC and all that. And they, we had to have faculty who were all certified. So I pulled it all together and realized that I had over 7,500 logged hours of coaching, hmm. you know, one-on-one -on -one where I could actually specify, you know, the program, the number of people, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I've been at it a long time. So, um, let, let me, we're going to talk today about neuroscience and coaching and, and just your, your work in sure. general, but what have you, what's the, what's the key then for you? Like, I'm going to ask that kind of question right, right. now. After right. 7,500 hours, like if you were to say to someone, <laughs> this is the heart of it, this is the heart well, the, of this change. Thanks. The insight comes from both all of that practice and spending a lot of time doing careful empirical research. Um, the behavioral research, like how do you help people change, like I said, started in 67, goes all the way through to 32 longitudinal studies we did with 25 to 35 year olds since 1990 uh, here at Case. But then also we've done a series of fMRI studies and some hormonal studies. In some cases, they're doctoral dissertations. In other cases, you know, I've directly done them. But it's a part of our, what we now call our coaching research lab, these, you know, multiple studies we have going on at any time. So it's the combination of the practice and the research that I think is important because practice without research to test whether or not you know it's going, it's working well, doesn't have the same integrity, I believe. Um, and yet research without practice may in fact be trivial. 
So the crux, Hmm. most of us want to help others. Most of us want to help others learn, change, find a better path in life that excites them, or sometimes help people do a better job than they're currently doing. At the heart of it involves motivating people to be open and learn and change. Here's the crux. Most of the ways we go about doing it is what we call coaching for compliance, where you're trying to get somebody to fit your model of how they should act. You're trying to get somebody to comply with your recommendation as to how they should be more empathic or more focused or better team player or whatever. And it doesn't work. That despite good intentions, coaching for compliance is experienced as an act of oppression, to put it strongly. Um, Again, even though you might mean well, even though you might have the insight, you might see what the person really needs to work on, as soon as you're telling them what they should do, it actually, we now have the evidence, it activates neurological networks that close the person down. So even if they say, yes, that's great, thank you, you know, what they're actually doing is listening like this, you know, which I, sorry for the listeners, I have my fingers in my ears. Uh, but, but, but the point is that what they're, the problem is even if they think it's good information, the, like, the lack of sustainability or durability is profound which is why, I mean, you ask the question, when you do the empirical evidence, almost all of the field of psychotherapy is wasted money and time. There's very little evidence. I mean, you know, what was it? I think showed decades ago that putting people in England on a waiting list had as much impact than actually having them go through psychotherapy. I'm afraid to say the results, the data I've been involved in looking at the impact of graduate programs like MBA programs and things like that on people's emotional and social and cognitive intelligence competencies is about as abysmal. Um, So if education doesn't work, if training, and by the way, the training results, except for training and oral presentation skills, the impact of training is really horrible. Um, I mean, it might be 11% improvement and it only lasts a few weeks or months. So I think that's the condemnation that most of the ways people go about trying to help don't work. Now, those of us who are in the field as professionals, as coaches or doctors, physicians or nurses or therapists, teachers, you know, we pride ourselves in trying to explore new techniques. I would contend that many of the things we're in pursuit of trying probably are a good idea and probably work, but not as many of them as we think. So if the way we typically go about trying to help somebody is coaching for compliance, then what works? And that's what we call coaching with compassion. So I, yeah, I want to kind of, expand on this coaching from compliance because we're going to go into coaching for compassion right. with compassion right. but could you could you like because a lot of coaches listening would say yeah I'm, I'm not there to tell people what to do right um, but I think it's more nuanced than that yeah I think oh, yeah, definitely and this is a here's an example that I'm about to kind of blow the lid off of uh, a sacred cow of helping or managing um, 
a lot of people think if we want to help motivate somebody, we get them to set goals. And I authored one of the early papers saying goal setting helps behavior change. The problem is that was 1970. Today, almost 50 years later, we're in a better position to know what actually happens. So for example, when you get somebody early in a process to say, what do you want to achieve? And you try to force them to, to articulate it as what we used to call a smart goal, a specific goal. We now know that you activate a neural network called the task positive network, or what Tony Jack calls the analytic network, that helps you focus, and that's good, helps you analyze, that's good, but it also closes you to anything new. So in fact, it closes you down to being open to new ideas or other people. So when you're early in a coaching process and you get somebody to say, okay, what is it you want out of this? And you try to force them to be specific. It's the specificity that gets in the way. The desire is a good thing. But, uh, you know, as we've explored in, in a bunch of these academic articles and now some practitioner pieces uh, and in the new book and, and in our MOOC, we also make this point. What you're really trying to do is set the context for coaching as the dream, not goals. And dreaming is a very different process than goals. Dreams will feel fanciful. I mean, yeah, I'm just grading executive MBA papers this morning. They have to go out and find two people and coach them with compassion for an hour, specifically around this one psychophysiological state. And 35 of my 45 students are physicians or nurses. So they're in healthcare. You'd think they know how to do this. Uh, what happens is, um, you know, trying to get them. So the, the lead question I tell them to ask is if your life were perfect or absolutely ideal 10 to 15 years from now, what would it be like? And, you know, when, when we first started asking this question, this succinctly in the early 90s, you know, we had executives in some of the programs, you know, coming back to us and saying, well, wait a minute, I don't want to ask that question of, you know, my people, because suppose their current dreams don't include working for this organization. And my response was, then they aren't now. I mean, what makes you think they're showing up other than their body? And by the way, the current engagement numbers, you know, from the, you know, the Gallup surveys and all that are abysmal. What was the last year? I think it said 76% of the people with full-time jobs in the United States weren't engaged in their work. And the numbers like 83% in Europe. And I think it's 81% in Japan. That means that most people are showing up to work don't really give a damn and aren't going to use their talent. So part of what we're facing in the whole field of trying to help and coach, whether with a capital C as a professional coach or to coach others as a manager or executive or helper with a small C is how do we get somebody open to learning? How do we get somebody motivated? I mean, it's a classic question of motivation and that's where again, by understanding the psychological and physiological processes, we have a much better picture now uh, of how to go about doing that. And, and the problem is most of the time, you know, I, I would ask your audience to think about uh, a setting with a manager where they're getting a performance review 
And, you know, you get to that last third of the performance review where uh, the manager or the boss says, well, what is it you want to do differently next year? You know, do you think people are sitting there saying, oh, my God, this is the most exciting thing that's happened to me in my life? No. They're feeling, they're hearing an obligation to commit to some stuff. And as soon as the concept of obligation comes in, it's what I call the ought self, that's when you start to close down. People get defensive. Now, they might get mildly defensive or extremely defensive. They're differing degrees, but they're still defensive. And in that state, people are not going to sustain any effort to change. So, you know, that's part of it. That, that's, that, that's not the whole thing about the coaching for compliance, but that was one angle. Yeah. I mean, I love this because I see that in my coaching clients, you know, that right. I get them in this dreaming place, you know, right. it's just completely, it's so palpable where they, yeah. and, and I say like, we're going to dream and we're going to invite in not knowing too, you know, so your dream will, you'll attune to it, you know, as right. we dream and, and you see their eyes light up, you know, and that's so different. That's right compared to when we're trying to fix a problem. The goal is about, oh, we're going to solve the problem. And, you, you know, I mean, I don't know about the neuroscience and the research behind it, but I know how that feels as a coach when I'm doing that kind and of coaching. So, yeah. so here's a question. On a number of the certification exams and pro coding processes, I don't want to talk about which organizations because those organizations are helping me in the current study we're doing of competencies of coaches that lead to client outcomes improve client outcomes, but very often they say the coach has to take the client's definition of what they want as the context for the whole coaching session. Okay. And my feeling is, you know, give me a break. That would be like me feeling lousy, going on the internet, figuring out my symptoms, diagnosing what's wrong with me, looking at more internet sites, figuring out what I should get as drugs and going into my internist and saying, Here's my analysis of what I have and what you should prescribe. Please give me the pills. You know, my internist should be uh, drummed out of the medical union, the AMA, um, if he or she did that. Well, yeah. that's what, unfortunately, the implication is. Now, I am not saying that a good coaching session shouldn't address the client's presenting problem. Of course it should. Because empathically, if you're not tuning into what it is that got them there, they're not going to feel like they're making progress. But the question that I and we raise repeatedly is, what's the context of the coaching? And I think the context of the coaching should not be a problem. That's negative. Should not be a specific goal. That's too limited. It should be a dream, the vision. And if that's the context, then you can address a whole lot that's in there. And as you just said, Joel, sometimes people discover new dimensions that they have either repressed or never even thought of. And that's where I remember one of our uh, adjunct faculty and uh, super coaches, Anita Howard, when she was still in the doctoral program, had raised in one of our coaching study groups. This is about 2002, 2003. Because everybody who was trying to do evaluation studies of coaching at the time was using client satisfaction as the key dependent variable. Uh, people had not gotten sophisticated enough yet to look at whether or not the clients actually changed. When people did try to look at change, which was very little of the existing literature, still is today very little, um, because of the 
difficulties collecting the data. But when people did, they looked at how did a person change their behavior? Well, she said, because she'd been involved in coaching African-American students at Harvard for years and then um, in a key role at Tufts for 25 years, she said, some of the most powerful coaching I've done is to help people find their dreams or change their dreams or update them or just suspend their parents' dreams, compliance, for them versus their dreams. So if you allow for the fact that the emotional driver of sustainable effort and change in learning is work. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's sometimes onerous, but to keep going at it requires the ability to refresh and have new sources of energy. And that's where, again, I think the dream, the vision. Yeah. Sorry, I, I mean to no, go on. No, it's bit. great because I, th- I find that too. You know, there needs to be a strong connection to this dream and to the me- right. meaning right. behind the, you know, the deep right. why. Because otherwise, you won't stay with it and you won't feel the motivation That's and, right. and the, that energy that comes with connecting to a dream, you know. So, also, an important caveat is people's dreams change. Mm. I mean, believe me, your dreams of what an ideal life would be like when you're single are different than when you actually find love and establish a long-term relationship with someone. Um, your dreams of an ideal life may change. I would hope they do when you have a child, uh, whether you have it biologically or adopt, doesn't matter when you all of a sudden are responsible um, when things happen at work, good or bad. Um, and then even on the more um, psychoanalytic level, when your parents die uh, a lot. So one of the issues is I'm never assuming that a person's vision or dream is static. I'm, I'm always assuming it's a draft, if you will. Even within a coaching trajectory, you know, like I often I'll say, look, you know, the thing you come in with now, you know, we're going to expand on that. And likely it will change, you know, quite a bit as we move into the coaching. Right. I mean, if there's a month, if there's as much as a month or more in between a coaching session I have with a, uh, one person that I'm talking to, I always open it by saying, just give me an update. Has any part of your vision changed. It does two things. One, it reminds them about the vision. Because again, I, I want that to be the context of our conversations. But the second thing is, is it allows them to say, yes, this thing happened. And, you know, I discovered I'm a fantastic guitarist. I don't have to be a dentist. Mm. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to cast aspersions on dental professionals. <laughs> um let me ask you about a couple of things. Like what is coaching with compassion? And you started to speak about that a bit, but I think that's a right. big subject. And, you know, you're talking about impact and the research. So I'm curious about what the impact is. For example, you know, coaching for compliance, you're saying it's got a very negligible impact or detrimental impact. Like what, how do you know what the impact okay. is? Like? So first, what is coaching with compassion? It is in our language, according to my intentional change theory, what moves you along the various discontinuous nonlinear moments of a change process towards sustained desired change are these kind of five stages that you cycle through iteratively. What moves you from one stage to the next is a psychophysiological state we call a tipping point in complexity theory. And in our model, uh, we believe that's moving from 
a state of the negative emotional attractor to the positive emotional attractor. We have um, the, these are, if you study complexity theory, strange attractors, and you need both. I mean, we, I call the ne negative emotional attractor the survive and the positive emotional attractor the thrive. Well, surviving is, in, is critical. I mean, if you're about to get shot or eaten, it doesn't matter if you're thriving or flourishing. You know, it's going to be a moot point. So you have to survive, but you also would like to find and activate your noble purpose in life through thriving. So the positive emotional attractor is a combination of, if you will, three axes. One is positive to negative affect. We know from Barb Fredrickson's phenomenally uh, exhaustive research and others that positive emotions create a context for openness, negative don't. The second dimension is the hormonal state of the parasympathetic nervous system versus the sympathetic. In English, that means the sympathetic nervous system is your body's stress response. And the parasympathetic is your body's renewal response. It is the only antidote to stress. And in fact, when people think they can manage their stress by lowering their stress level, they may, but it's far more impactful for them to introduce more renewal moments throughout the day on smaller doses to help their bodies and minds. Because stress at the levels we experience it in most professional lives today is at the level of chronic strain. And it causes us to have cognitive and perceptual and emotional impairment. Research is very clear on that. Yeah. These moments of renewal allow you to change that and in a sense, replenish the reservoir of, of energy you have. The third dimension to the PEA versus NEA is the neural activation. And fundamentally, it's the difference between activating the empathic network, technically called the default mode network, versus the task positive, or as Tony Jack calls it, the analytic network. Uh, the analytic network helps us to focus and solve problems and make decisions. The default mode helps us to be open to new ideas, be open to people, and consider what's fair and just. And the dilemma is, like with the, like with the stress renewal, like with the positive negative, you need both, but you need them in different doses. And that's where most people um, miss the boat. They get so used to um, the overwhelming, uh, you know, tons of crap that gets dumped on their head in terms of expectations or negative feedback or s various forms of stressors, including watching the news, mm. that what they end up doing is sinking into an abysmal hole. It's one of the arguments I have, and as a former therapist, I have with the whole field of psychotherapy, that there's a difference between empathizing with someone, understanding them, feeling with them, and allowing them or enabling them to wallow in their self-pity. And I'm afraid that every time you stick with a negative experience or problem more than five to seven minutes, unless it's traumatic and now you're into a different game, um, a different set of processes. but uh, you know, if you don't work the positive, I mean, I even knew it when I was treating alcoholics. I mean, if they didn't have a positive reason to re-enter their families, to work in a different way, to live, they'd be back drinking in six months. Mm. 
uh, maintaining sobriety was necessary, but it's not enough as a, as a target. So, so the concept is you want to help people move into this positive emotional attractor state. When you do that through your conversations with people, we call that coaching with compassion. The so reason I, we call yeah. it coaching with compassion is that um, Melvin Smith and I started writing about this in 2003. And now with Ellen Van Osten, we're doing a lot of writing about it. But typically in the West, the expression of compassion is used to mean helping someone in pain. Well, we took a different source. Uh, and the source was Confucius. And in fact, a couple of years before Aristotle laid out this argument, Confucius articulated the fact that the essence of interacting with another person is an act of benevolence, uh, jin in Chinese, an act of caring. And what we do is we take that as the basis. And as Aristotle explained, um, it's not only having hedonic caring, helping someone who's in pain or in trouble, but it's also eudaimonic caring, helping someone who wants to grow, wants to find new excitement in life. So our sense, our use of the term compassion is this caring for the other person. Nice. And what we find is that when you do your coaching, again, formal coaching or just chats with people and you bring them periodically, but more into the PEA state than the NEA, they have a sustained energy. How do we know that? Oh, sorry, you had a follow-up question. Before no. I answer the second question, yeah, um, well, we just I want to. I'm just curious about how you, how you do that, you know, and if you bring them into the PEA, this positive emotional right uh, attractor or like does, does state does that um, you know then influence the parasympathetic nervous system? Yes, no, it's that's all, it's all we, we all define time. it well because these. And Bob Fredrickson uses that as antecedents and consequences, but I in fact think the state is involves the hormonal and neural because they're, I mean, these neural activations are happening in thousands of a millisecond. Right. Now it might take a second or two or even a minute or two for the hormonal systems to kick in, but they happen very fast. Right. You know, your, your state is changing. So our feeling is we want people to become aware of that. And, you know, yes, uh, you know, uh, one of my uh, friends and colleagues, uh, Amanda Blake, is doing a lot writing and doing research on somatic coaching. There are a whole bunch of people that are using somatic coaching. That is one key way to get to it, to get people to know what the sensations and biomarkers. Hell, in every two to three hour talk I give or class, I go through a few exercises where periodically I'll flag and say, by the way, if you had any of these sensations in the last eight minutes, you were in the parasympathetic nervous system, or you were in the PEA, or you were in um, this renewal state. So I think we can help people get to that. Now, how do we do it? Um, it's, it's this issue of how do we activate something positive, something renewing, parasympathetic, and something in the default mode, or the empathic network? Well, one way is to dream. We now have published studies, one done, and the replication study, you know, we're busily rewriting, uh, but it replicated fully. So we've got two fMRI studies showing, yes, 30 minutes of coaching to vision rather than problems activates all of these neurological issues. We know from some of the hormonal studies that when you 
um, ask questions about vision, people get excited, which is somewhat stressful, but then they bounce back much faster than if you're asking them about problems. We know that during coaching sessions, when you talk about vision and then you talk about strengths and weaknesses, and then at, toward the end, you say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Everyone affectively goes negative. Everyone. 49-year-old dentists, 34-year-old graduate students. I mean, it's just amazing. Men, women, people from every race and every country imaginable. So the issue is how do you help people get excited about something they want to learn or change? How do, how do you help the process of looking forward be joyful rather than obligatory? And that's where we find one issue is to make sure you're activating the vision, the dream, and periodically reminding them of that. And by the way, that works in couples, in families, in organizations, in communities, in countries, just as much. Second, um, how do you, well, one way to do it is to activate gratitude, compassion. That's key. Uh, because when you activate, so we ask a question, who helped you the most? When people talk about the people who help them most, even if they cry because the person's passed away or they miss them or they talk about it, they're in a state of gratitude and that's, that activates all parts of this parasympathetic. Matter of fact, um, Sonia Lubarowski of um, a prominent psychologist at, at UC, I think she's at Irvine, has shown repeatedly that uh, gratitude journals actually have a better, much more, uh, but stronger and more enduring impact on a person's sense of well-being than even optimism journals. Mm. So gratitude's one. Um, you know, we try to get people in touch with their purpose, their noble purpose, mm. their core values, mindfulness. I mean, so, I mean, we've broken it down to hope does it through things like vision, um, compassion does it through caring for others, or, and sometimes it's, of thinking about people who have helped you. Other times it's actually going out and helping others, um, wanting to coach others or wanting to help people less fortunate. Um, I always point out that having people help elderly professors is a really important thing for their health. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry if, per if people in the audience hearing me don't recognize that I'm uh, 72, so I consider myself elderly. But anyway, um, and, and then mindfulness. Uh, and mindfulness, you know, breaks down into all sorts of parts from uh, tuning in to, you know, meditation and yoga and Tai Chi and prayer and exercise and walking in the woods. Um, and, and the one that was added that the neurological evidence came out after our 2005 book on this um, is uh, playfulness. Mm. Playfulness really helps, although it's constrained in certain cultures you know, because of interactions with gender dynamics, you know, of yeah. where and how women are allowed to be playful versus men. But in, in many societies, there is not that distinction. So playfulness really works. I, I love hearing all this. I'm, I'm so excited, babe. I, I'd love it. Um, let me see if I can, because I, Oh, let me answer. Let me see if I can answer succinctly linked to what we just said, the answer to the other question you asked, which is yeah. how do we know it's working? Well, yeah. We started a series of studies um, in 1987, focusing on our MBAs. And these are 28-year-olds who are working 
in either coming back to school full-time or going to school part-time. We extended it to 40-year-olds uh, that are in the executive program, executive MBA. And over the decades, we've done 32 studies with the 25 to 35-year-olds and four with the 40-ish-year-olds. And we have shown clear and consistent against baseline datas and you know time series and all this stuff, enduring impact on their emotional and social intelligence behavior, how they're acting with others, mm. how they're controlling their emotions, you know, from emotional self-awareness to empathy, to adaptability, to inspirational leadership, to teamwork, all these things. And we've shown that it holds out, uh, it drops off as it always does from about a 62% impact a year or two later. It holds at about a 50% improvement, even out five to seven years. Wow. And that's something that the best MBA program studied by the group that accredits them uh, showed a 2% impact a year later and it dropped off. Uh, the best training programs, the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence and Organizations looked at every published study since 1950 in every country of the world and found basically 15 that passed scientific rigor and they had an 11% impact three weeks to three months later and then it drops off. So the results we're getting are dramatic and the big difference in our course, the program we administer as a part of the uh, degree programs and in the executive education programs is that we first work on vision. We don't do anything, no feedback, nothing until the person works a very comprehensive personal vision. Second, the person has to talk about their vision with a coach who's trained in more PEA than NEA techniques, which many coaches are. Um, but the And then we encourage people to form peer coaching groups. But the combination, I mean, actually, one of our M, um, fMRI studies, we found that just writing the vision didn't have anywhere near the impact of thinking about your vision and then talking about it with a coach. Well, so what we're looking for in the outcome studies we're trying to relate in this new study we're doing now, the competencies of coaches as seen by others. I don't trust self-assessment on this, uh, the emotional, social intelligence, et cetera, of the coaches as compared to uh, or accounting for the longitudinal impact on their clients. Yeah. But we're asking, do the clients change their behavior? So we're doing that again through 360 because self-assessment is delusional. Do the clients change their vision? So we're measuring that. And do they change the quality of their relationships? Because uh, we would contend, and I contend out of my intentional change theory, that really effective coaching has all three components. I mean, it affects your vision, it affects your real self and your behavior, and it affects the quality of your relationships. So much I want to ask you, and I know we've only got a few minutes left, but for me, that's something in my coaching that's really important is having somebody talk about their vision. And then right. what arises, what is it like right. to embody that vision, so to speak? You betcha. Yep. A few things will happen. Like they will start to feel empowered and feelings of joy or commitment or whatever arises. But also they might start to connect to the places inside of them. that They still can't quite allow that to, to fully embody it. So it's a very right. rich conversation. So, so I love that you talk and, about And part of, and I like the way you, you worked in the, the parts of their body because the more a person can be holistic about this internally as well as with others, the more likely their efforts will be durable or sustainable. So I keep right. coming back to that durability. 
I mean, most, you know, that's why I say to people, anybody trying to lose weight won't. Because if you're volume challenged, you know, you can only eat rabbit food for a few days. The reality is, no matter how self-righteous you are after the second or third day of eating these small amounts of lettuce and all these kinds of things, um, something happens in your life or at work that pisses you off and you grab for the cherry Garcia or whatever your favorite flavor of ice cream is or red wine or whatever. So the sustainability of the effort is really a major uh, issue. And the more holistic you're being about it, the better off you're going to be. So I want to try and get a sense, because you said something that grabbed me, which is like, if you just give people, um, you know, you have your coaching vision, visioning, and then strengths, and then you, at the end, you give them things to do, even that can put them in this negative um, emotional state. And so I'm curious, right. like, what does it look like when you're doing this um, coaching right. with compassion? Then are you, if, you know, how, if how you're it, doing uh, it right, if you're doing yeah. it in an ideal sequence, the person doesn't get to, first of all, I don't encourage anybody to look at their strengths and then later their weaknesses, any assessment data until after their commitment to the vision is clear and it's holistic. So there are times in which I start out thinking I'll do the code, the vision discussion in one session that'll take three different sessions to get to, um, especially if a person's under some trauma. I always suggest as a rule of thumb, not this isn't literal, but this is um, an analog. If you only had 60 minutes to coach someone, spend 30 minutes on their vision, 20 minutes on their strengths, five minutes on their weaknesses, and five minutes on their plan. Yeah. So I do think people should commit to doing something, but it should be something that they're eager to try. Right. Um, and when it is, people do it. They'll, they'll keep up the work. They'll keep up the energy. Yeah. I mean, it's connected now, to their vision, yeah? That's the thing. Yes. Like and, the it, it, but let me come back to this, because the relationship to the coach and others is really important. Because while the vision is key as the context, unless you have some humans to talk to about it, it's, you have difficulty with it, sustaining. Because one of the things that activates the empathic network and some renewal activities is being with others. Hmm. Um, and now we're not being with critical others or perfectionist others. It's being with supportive others, but it becomes really imperative. And I, we, we developed a technique back in 1990 called your personal board of directors, but it's similar to what Kathy Cram from BU uh, calls the developmental network. I mean, I think everybody needs easily five people that are there, their coaches, um, not capital C, but small C, which probably should include one coach with a capital C. Mm. I mean, one really trained professional coach, but it might also include a spouse or partner. It might include a couple friends. I'm old enough now that some of my students are my coaches <laughs> and help me the most kind of rein in my emotional excesses when they occur. So I, I don't want to leave this without, leave this, this first chat without emphasizing the interpersonal part is very key here. Yeah. And that's where um, a coach really helps somebody connect to others and, and where eventually I think we're all heading because I I've been saying for a number of years now, I think face-to-face training is on its way out. And I think worldwide coaching will replace training as the major vehicle for development. If for no other reason than 
a good third of the world lives in hierarchical societies like Japan or China or India or the Middle East or the Mediterranean, where they don't, people don't feel comfortable with status differences in a training room. Mm. But everybody wants to develop, and coaching allows that in the privacy of um, a conversation. But I think the longer term implications is for us to transfer that skill and this orientation to peer coaching Um, because, you know, no organization has enough money in their budgets to have professional coaches for all 80,000 of their managers or professionals. Uh, And often they fund the coaches for the top 300 or 500. What do you do with the other 70,000 people? And that's where if we can help discover techniques of peer coaching, which we used to call friends, but we don't have time for friends anymore. So, but develop this, but not to be gripe sessions, to be sessions where you may support someone in a moment of pain, but a lot of it has to do with helping ask people how they're doing on their vision or, you know, these kinds of things. I want to say a couple of things. Like one is imagine a world where everybody starts to invite other people into the vision more. I mean, right. really, that moves me. I feel emotional thinking about that right now because, hell, we, we need that right now, you know? So We decided to end in the last, very last chapter of our new book, we decided to end with an invitation to do exactly that, to spend 15 minutes a day having a conversation with somebody using these approaches. It could be over coffee. It could be in the hall. It could be, you know, waiting for a meeting to start. It could be over drinks or dinner. But if everybody did it with one more person each day, um, you know, within a year, you've got hundreds of thousands of people feeling excited about life with a more hopeful image, not unrealistic. It's not, I, 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 I want that to be a project in the world, you know? I mean, I right. want someone to pick that up and make it right. big, you know? and I hope your book uh, begins to, to do that. Um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. I feel really inspired, and that, you know, that, that's a great sign, and thank you. And um, just tell us where we can, you know, you've got this new book coming out. Yeah, it's then- called Helping People Change. It's by um, uh, myself and Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Osten. Harvard Business Review Press is publishing it. Uh, I just found out two weeks ago, it's available for pre-orders on Amazon, but it actually is, uh, will be shipped in August. So we're very excited about it because we chose to, although it's based on the research, we chose to write the the book through stories of people um, trying to help others, whether as uh, physicians or managers or formal coaches or parents. And some of the stories that make us smile and feel good about things that have worked and some of the stories that make us shake us head about things that have just fallen on their faces. So, well, let's round up here and then um, I wish you a a great, great day. Okay. Thanks a lot, Joe, for the opportunity. Bye-bye.